welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Bruce Lipton, a stem cell biologist and the best-selling author of The Biology of Belief, Spontaneous Evolution, and The Honeymoon Effect. Welcome. Welcome, I Bruce. am so happy to be here with you because I followed what you've been doing, and I am so honored to, to be in your community, to to um, see how you've taken a very important message of self-empowerment that is required out to the public at the cost of your profession of back surgery, spine surgery. is like, okay, man, that, that is very brave and very important at this wonderful time. So I just wanted to honor you at the opening at this moment. I'm happy to be here with you, David. Well, thanks, Bruce. Um, I get to know Bruce about five years ago through a friend of mine, John Lehman, I went to a conference he was speaking at, and we just met in the lobby real quickly. And I had the opportunity to go to his house in Santa Cruz a couple of times and just had wonderful conversations about just life and quantum physics and cell biology. And his concepts have changed my thinking dramatically as far as opening things up. And without going into detail, to me, the ultimate answer to chronic pain is the spiritual journey, which means opening your mind up to possibilities. And there's a lot of steps to go through to get there. And Bruce and I talked for a second beforehand, and I'd like just just to jump right into your idea about the consciousness, how the conscious and subconscious work together, how they create our reality. I'm really fascinated by some of the things you said just before we came on the air. Yeah, well, I hope that you uh, put your raise your hand and yell uh, when something important comes up because let's break right into it. It's a conversation, and I don't want to take it into a lecture. So okay. uh, conversation-wise, let me just say that um, – uh, like you, I was deeply ingrained in the uh, allopathic medical community as a professor in a medical school, uh, teaching at that time years ago the concept of genetic determinism, which is the belief that the public still holds, even though science has canceled that belief, the public still has a belief that uh, genetic determinism uh, is the belief that genes, the character of your genes determine the character of your life. Uh, and the relevance about that is since, as far as we know, we didn't pick the genes, we can't change the genes, and we're told they turn on and off by themselves. And we look at our lives as being victims of health in a sense, like, right. oh, my God, something went wrong on the inside. It wasn't me. I, I was out here, and something went wrong inside. Uh, and that's what we have programmed people with. And while I was teaching that, uh, my research on stem cells, which are the equivalent of embryonic cells in your body, um, uh, a very important, just quick reason why uh, stem cells is that uh, when we look in the mirror and see ourselves as a single entity, that's an illusion because the truth is we are a community of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity and Bruce in this context is an expression of a community. So the body is this very large community of 50 trillion, but cells, uh, our, our cells die every day at a rate of several hundreds of billions of cells every day just dying. It's natural turnover. But then the part is, well, we're still alive. And I say, well, how can you still be alive if every day you're losing hundreds of billions of your cells? The answer is because stem cells are in our bodies. If you're alive, you have stem cells. Uh, and their function is to replace the cells every day. So go back now. I'm teaching medical school students that genes control life. My research is I take one of these embryonic stem cells, put it in a dish that's called cloning, 
it divides, and after a week of dividing, I've got 30,000 cells. They're all from the same parent, so I have 30,000 genetically identical cells. And I split them into three Petri dishes, and the only difference between the dishes is the culture medium composition. I change it a little bit. So I have three different culture media environments, three different environments. And I say, well, what's the consequence? In dish one, the cells form muscle. In dish two, the cells form bone. In dish three, they form fat cells. And I go, well, what's the, the big story here? And the big story, of course, is this. They all had the same genes. Okay. So it wasn't like the genes made a decision. The genes were responding to the environment, the okay. culture medium. I say, so why is it relevant? So I say, now let's take this big experiment from the small picture dish into what? The human body. The human body is a community of cells. It's a skin-covered Petri dish, and, and it's got 50 trillion cells inside. And I go, so what? And I say, it's got the original culture medium. That's what was controlling the genetics. I say, the original culture medium is blood. That's what we made in the lab, culture medium. So I say, why is it relevant? Well, then I say, it doesn't make a difference if the cell is in the plastic dish or the cell is in the skin-covered dish. The significance is this. It's the environment. In the culture dish, culture medium, in the human body, the composition of the blood, the culture medium. Okay. That determines genetics and behavior. And all of a sudden it says, oh my goodness, I say, why is that relevant? Because I can adjust my blood. I do it all the time by thinking. If I'm afraid, I put different chemistry in the blood. If I'm happy and I'm in love, I put different chemistry in the blood. So I am controlling the composition of my culture medium through my consciousness. Right. And I go, so why is it relevant? I say, because let's just compare two opposite extremes so you can see the difference. Is um, Love and fear are a polarity, the two polarities. Right. When, when you're in love, the brain translates love into wonderful chemistry, dopamine, pleasure, oxytocin, bonding, vasopressin makes you more attractive to your partner, and growth hormone. The growth hormone is why when people fall in love, they're so much more healthier because of the growth hormone running through the system. So I say, yeah, that's what chemistry goes into your culture, medium, blood when you're in love. But I say, now the other side is this. I open up my eyes, there's something that scares me. Uh, then stress hormones are released into the blood. All that other good love chemistry, that's not being released in the blood. Now my blood has stress chemistry. And I say, well, what's the relevance of that? Well, it does two major things to my biology. And the major, the major thing is this, a stress chemistry was designed to run away from a saber-toothed tiger 100,000 years ago. Right. So what was the point? It says, well, the stress chemistry is chemistry that gets you ready for fight and flight. I go, yes. Yeah, so what does that mean? I say, you need energy. And the blood is the source of energy. Right. So when you're in a fight or flight mode, the circulatory system preferentially pushes the bloods into the arms and legs. So I run, fight, whatever I need to do to escape, okay? Right. Uh, and I say, yeah, but what do you mean preferentially put it into the arm? Where the heck was it before it went into the arms and legs? I go, it was in the gut. I say, well, what's the difference? I say the function of the gut, growth, maintenance of health, repair the body, filter all the systems. That's, it's maintenance of this healthy body. And I say, so, but what happens? Stress hormones cause the blood vessels in the gut to shut off. That's why people get that butterflies in the gut feeling when they get nervous. What the butterflies are is actually the blood vessels starting to squeeze shut. I say, why? Because then it pushes the blood to the arms and legs. So for fight or flight. So I say, oh, 
So in a state of fear, you put energy in a fight or flight arms and legs. And in a state of growth, you put energy into the viscera with all the functions to keep you healthy and to maintain the body. I go, yeah. And I say, well, the whole idea was 10,000, 100,000 years ago, the only time you had to use the fight or flight was the saber-toothed tiger. Right. And if you escaped in a few minutes, then guess what? No more threat, no more stress. Then the system reverts back to growth. But today's world, the uh, stress factor is 24-7-365. And it says, my God, the biology was never designed to keep secreting into the culture medium, the blood, stress hormones, because it's shutting down the health and maintenance of the body. And uh, uh, think about it. Remember, it's the idea is to conserve energy. Think about it this way. When you're sick and the immune system is operating, it uses so much energy that sometimes you don't have the energy to get out of bed. So all of a sudden you say, oh my goodness, the immune system is a major energy sink. <laughs> when it's operating, it uses lots of energy. I say, yeah. So now put the scenario. I got a bacterial infection and I'm being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. How am I going to distribute the energy? And the answer is, the hell with the bacteria. Uh, if the tiger catches me, <laughs> that's not a problem anymore. Uh, it, so what the, the jokey conclusion, and it's not jokey, is that stress hormones specifically shut down the immune system to conserve energy. Okay. So now I say, and I say, so what's wrong in our world today where the health crisis is overtaking every country? The cost of all of this is exorbitant. It's bankrupting people, nations, everything. I say, what's the cause of this health crisis? 90% or more of all illness is now directly attributed to stress. Less than 1% of illness is actually connected to uh, disease. Oh my God, genes only account for less than 1%, but our life is responsible for the remaining problems. Our environment and how we respond to the environment are the cause of the health crisis. And this is why your work to me is so important, David, because you have seen this, that if we adjust and help the environment, we don't have to go in and touch the physical body. The body is a complement of my life. If I have a symptom in my biology, it's because there's a consequence in my mind where that chemistry that creates that symptom, where did that chemistry come from? Right. Love chemistry? Fear chemistry? Which one? Yeah, that's fascinating that you pointed that out because this is, my thinking shifted quite a bit since I talked to you last about a year ago. But the essence of healing is actually feeling safe. And when you feel safe, your body chemistry is optimized. And when you're under threat, why of course you're, you're what happens is that exactly what you talk about. And we've known for over 50 or 60 years that chronic stress kills people. You know, double heart disease, suicide, anxiety, depression, blood pressure, cancer, mortality, all those things go way up when you're under chronic stress. Then the last few years, they've shown out that a mental threat the forms of thoughts and concepts, first of all, become permanently embedded in your brain, just like a chair or a table, and then you can't escape your thoughts or these concepts. And so the emotional pain goes to the same part of the brain as a physical threat, but you can't escape your thoughts. So every human being has a certain amount of exposure to sustained elevations of these stress chemicals, and you can't control it or suppress it without a penalty. And the key issue, what I'd like to jump into is about these choices you make because you, can, you can't control the body's chemistry, but you can control the input that creates the body's chemistry, which means understanding the problem, 
Um, understanding anxiety really just reflects levels of stress chemicals, but you have to take control. You have to take responsibility for, for your own thing. Because as you pointed out, your consciousness determines your body chemistry, which determines your health. And then I think I'll have, I'll have you explain this a little bit again through epigenetics. You actually pass it on to the next generation. Am I correct in that? 100%. It's been followed over four generations, an experience that a parent had. Uh, had altered the behavior of four generations okay. after that experience. Okay. So I guess my first thing I'd like to do is just review really quickly how your thoughts and consciousness actually creates your reality. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and before I get into this biology and the chemistry and the genetics part, uh, as we mentioned before we started, there's a very important point, and that is, the most valid science on planet earth is uh, quantum physics and now most people don't know really what the heck it all is about but it's the most truthful of all sciences and i say so relevance for the our discussion at this one minute is that the first and primary principle of quantum physics is that mind is creating our life experiences consciousness is involved with shaping the world and I say significance is very clear. If consciousness is shaping the world, then by definition, a change in consciousness changes your experience in the world, which is absolutely true. So there's a scientific foundation here before biology even that consciousness is involved. Now let's put it into the biological realm. And the realm that we've touched on very briefly is simply this, is that the consciousness of the brain is translated into complementary chemistry. And I mean complementary chemistry in this regard, that healthy thoughts release healthy chemistry and, and thoughts of fear and, and scary things like that release very uh, negative chemistry. Uh, so your thoughts are, are it's like translated into chemistry. Uh, and the chemistry really precisely matches those thoughts very clearly. And I say, so why is it relevant? And then as you brought up, we have the ideas, well, we're thinking and we're creating this. And then I go, yeah, but here is the problem. It's created by the mind. And that right away is problem number one, the mind, because people think, oh, there's this one mind. Uh, and the simple reality is, no, there are two uh, interdependent minds. The one is called the conscious mind. That's the latest evolution of the human brain right behind your forehead a lobe of tissue called prefrontal cortex, conscious mind. And previous, the brain was just basically what you call subconscious. I say, what's the difference between these? And the answer is this. Subconscious is like the habit mind, self-automated control mind, no consciousness involved. You don't have to worry about uh, your respiration, your blood pressure, your body temperature, things, all these things are automatically controlled underneath your consciousness. So, so subconscious is involved with that. And, and then we also find this is that the subconscious has basic behavioral programs built in as well. And they're acquired. I'll give a good example of subconscious good programming for most people. And that is, when did you learn how to walk? <laughs> I say, before you were two. I say, well, thank God the subconscious habit mind is taking care of that because you've never had to relearn how to do the walking again. You could be 100 years old. So the idea is the subconscious mind puts in programs that are repeated to the extent that, okay, it's now a habit. It's a habit, okay? And I go, so it has, I said, but where does it get the habit? So we just step back one second. The brain is like a computer. Fine. I say, in the last trimester of pregnancy, the operating system is, is operating. 
last trimester of pregnancy, it's just like you went out, bought a new computer, pushed on, the thing boots up. And I go, great, that's where the brain is. But then I say, you just bought a new computer, you push the operating system, it boots up, and now I say, do something. Write, draw, spreadsheet, I don't care. And you go, oh, I can't do anything because first I have to put programs into the machine that right. I can use to operate. So I say, you know what? Exactly the same for the human brain. An opening operating system, last trimester of pregnancy. But right. It needs to put programs in to carry out life. So I say, well, where does it get the basic program? So I say, well, life experience is number one, uh, learning how to walk. You did that. You learned how to stand up, stay in balance, and the system learned and then memorized and boom, a habit, walking, no thinking anymore. I go, yeah. And then I say, but there are other programs that we get from other people of how to be a member of a family, how to be a member of a community, how life works. I said, where does a kid get these programs to get off the ground? Because no programs, you can't be conscious because there's nothing to be conscious of. So right. first you put programs in. I say, and this is the critical part, and that is the first seven years of a child's life, the brain is operating at a vibrational frequency called theta. That's if you put electric wires on your head, EEG, electroencephalograph. Okay. Uh, the vibration of a brain in theta is below consciousness, but it's a state of hypnosis. Okay. And state of imagination. I said, this is where children live in the first seven years of their life. A, a state of imagination. They can mix the real world, imaginary world seamlessly. A, a broom becomes a horse. To that kid, it's not a broom at all. It's a complete live horse or tea party where they pour nothing in a cup. They drink nothing and talk about how great the tea was. That's theta. But theta okay. is hypnosis. So now we're coming down to the most serious part of our issue that we're talking. I'm sorry it took so long, David, but here it comes that um, the conscious mind, when it evolves around age seven, starts working, is the creative mind. Conscious has wishes and desires. If I ask anybody out there in the world, I say, what do you want from your life? The answer they will generate will come from conscious mind because that's the imagination. What, what is it I would like? And then imagination. So I say, ah, conscious mind has wishes, desires, visions, imagination. I say, great. And then I go, so what? I say, you got programs in the first seven years. Once the programs are in, conscious mind activates. It's sort of like look at your, your body as a vehicle and there's a steering wheel. Uh, and I say, okay, uh, at age seven, you get to put your hands on the steering wheel and drive it to where you want to go. That's creative, okay? Right. Uh, and then I say, but here's the problem. Conscious mind can only be the driver when it's looking out the window, <laughs> when it's seeing the world. Okay. And he goes, so what? And I go, because we also know the conscious mind can think. And he goes, so what is that? And I go, it's internal focus. A thought is not perceived in the outer world. A thought goes to the inside. So I said, what does that mean? I said, if you're thinking, you've taken your conscious mind away from looking out at the world and have put it inside to think of something, whatever you were thinking about. I say, so what? Well, if you're walking down the street and your conscious mind stops looking out the window, goes inside, well, you think, oh my God, I'm going to bump into something, fall off the sidewalk or whatever. I go, no, you keep walking. Or if you're driving the car and you're in thought and not paying attention, the car's still being driven. I go, so what? And here's the point after all of this I know, is, I love that, it. is that the subconscious mind has programs. It knows how to walk. It knows how to drive the car. It knows all the routine things that we do. It is the autopilot point. When you are thinking, 
whatever behavior you're carrying out is now on program. It's just going to like push the button, play the program. Okay. And I say, why is that relevant? Because most of the programs that we operate from life came in the first seven years. They go, yes. So what? And I go, they didn't come from us. They came from observing your mother, your father, your community. I go, so why? I say, because whatever programs in there not, don't necessarily support you at all. As a matter of fact, it's suggested about 70% of the programs downloaded into our mind before age seven are uh, disempowering, limiting, self-sabotaging. Right. Okay. Now, when it comes to medicine, this is really the most important thing because I say, what does the average person experience in their growing up in the first seven years when it comes to health? And the answer is, we go to the doctor. I say, fine. I say, what is the program that comes from doing this? Is that I'm not in charge of my health. The doctor is a professional. And so I defer my belief system, my mind to whatever the doctor says. I give the doctor the value of truth provider in my mind. Right. I say, why is it relevant? Well, the function of the mind is to manifest whatever the program is. And then you may get a prognosis. And I go, well, what's that? And I said, you're being told by the truth provider <laughs> that you learned was the health truth provider in your first seven years. You're given a future. And I go, well, what's the problem? And I said, because you, the, the mind takes it as a truth, and the function of the mind is to manifest truth. Right. So whatever the, uh, the program is, you're going to manifest it. If you get a prognosis that uh, you've got three months left to live, the mind takes that as truth of life, right. puts it into the program, and counts down for three months until about that time. Then all of a sudden you die, and, and you die because you thought you had cancer, and then now they've done uh, autopsies on people who were told they were going to die at a certain time, die, look at the autopsy, but they didn't die from the cancer. Wow. They, they died from other things. So what was the point? The point was we must understand our consciousness controls our life. And we must understand that frequently we give away our truth to other professionals and that then their words become our truth and our mind's job is to take truth and manifest it. And uh, yes. Uh, that's a fascinating sequence that you talked about because one of the biggest problems that we have in medicine, if not the biggest, is that people take on the characteristics of their diagnosis. And so, for instance, people say, well, I have fibromyalgia, or I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or I have something like this, or I'm, uh, whatever it is, what, what happens, or I'm bipolar, and what happens, it, it probably is true that there's bipolar characteristics, but then they actually becomes a very much of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They actually take on the characteristics of the diagnosis, and they do get physically sick. And it's extremely consistent, and probably one of the biggest obstacles of healing I've ever seen. But I think your, your biggest point, and it's been now mine, um, I actually do listen to you eventually. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do create your own reality and it's not positive thinking, it's just being become aware of what's in there and working around with what's already there. Because you're right, the subconscious brain is, for seven years, it's automatic and it runs the rest of your life unless you're aware of what's already in there then I think you pointed out in your book that the unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second, where the conscious brain processes about 40. It's, a, it's like a 20 million to 40 mismatch. So you're not going to control the survival response, 
but you do have choices. You do have the steering wheel. Yeah. And, and that's a really key question here. And that's why your point that we had before we started was about taking responsibility for your own health is probably the number one step, maybe the only step you need to heal. Because again, the, the key issue of healing is feeling safe, which then optimizes your body's chemistry. As you learn how to optimize your body's chemistry, which you have a choice about based on your thoughts and actions, then you actually can create physical health in your body. And so that's what we're going to talk about in the second episode a bit is, you know, some of the tools you suggest for people to do no. that. But let, I'd just like to review here in the last five minutes about just this flat out how your consciousness translates into a biological reality. You know what, if I could just add this, because this, also, this will summarize it so simply, and that is people are totally aware of something called the placebo effect. Right. But what is that? That's where you're told this therapy or this pill is the most magical thing that's going to heal you. Right. Uh, uh, you take the pill, you get better, and then you find out the pill was a sugar pill. This is what the whole foundation of placebo effect is all about, is then what healed you was your belief in the pill, not the pill. It was your belief. It was your consciousness. And everybody goes, yes, the placebo effect. I got it. Yeah, this positive thinking about the technology, the pill, the therapy, this positive thinking can do all the healing, not the, not the, the, the pill or the therapy. Right. I go, yeah, that's a true story. And then I say, but you left out the most important part of the story, and that is, Negative thinking is equally powerful to positive thinking, right? But it takes you in the direction of a negative reality. Correct. And this is the, it's called nocebo in medicine. And right. I say, what's the relevance? Just the negative thinking of a belief that I have a cancer can cause a cancer. The negative thinking of any disease that if I really fully believe I have this disease, I will manifest that disease. Absolutely. I go, the exact power of the placebo working in the other direction. So uh, it's not placebo or nocebo, positive or negative thinking. It is thinking right. that controls your biology. Right. And then all of a sudden it says, well, if you want to get back to the control, then you have to get back to them. What or how or why am I thinking this way? Right. See, the thing is, the key issue is when people say, well, you know, there's over 30 physical symptoms that are created by elevated stress chemicals that are sustained. And people say, well, the pain's in my head or it's imaginary or psychological. The answer is that it is physiological, is that your thoughts create a body chemistry that's either optimum or less than optimum. And there's a term called medically unexplained symptoms, which really strikes a bad chord with me because every symptom is explained based on the body's chemistry, right? Yes. If you're full of adrenaline and cortisol, your heart's going to raise, you have palpitations, you're going to sweat, you're not going to sleep very well. I mean, all these things happen because of your body's chemistry. The so, culture medium. Yeah, it's the culture medium. And you also made a comment to me a couple of years ago, I think it was really succinctly, that you said when you put cells in a culture medium of adrenaline and cortisol and other stress chemicals, they actually physically shrunk. Was that true? They, they stopped growing and they stopped uh, in a very short time will die. Really? Yeah, they shut off. It's the same as the human body. If I put stress chemicals in the human body, I shut off growth and maintenance of the body. Okay. I say, yeah, but at the cellular level, the cell has the equivalent of a body, cytoplasm, and its functions are the same as ours. I say, yeah, and if you put stress hormone on the cell, it's the same as you put stress hormone in the human. Shuts off the growth mechanism and will lead to the death of the cell. 
And if you put the cells in the serotonin, dopamine, and the growth hormones, they thrive, right? Yeah. So, so it's, the, it's the culture medium that is, is controlling behavior and genetics, epigenetics, okay? Right. Uh, and then, and I say, yeah, but the culture medium, as you and I have emphasized earlier, is the same as blood in the body. So our blood, the culture medium is controlling all those characteristics, and then, then you back it back up, and that's where you have to go back to, yeah, the brain is the chemist, and that uh, uh, the mind is the, uh, the source of the chemistry, <laughs> you know, the translation of that into chemistry. Let's just take the final couple of minutes here. If we just start at the top and just give us a really quick overview of what we just discussed about creating your own physical reality based on your thoughts and concepts, because this is really the essence of the entire project that I'm doing. Yeah. Well, the basic understanding is that the cells in your body respond to their environment, which is blood. They live in culture, medium blood. The chemistry of blood is not accidental. It's a actual match complementary to what you're experiencing in your life. Uh, so our experiences turn into feelings, physiology, emotions, all these things. That's the translation of that chemistry in your body. Your sensations are coming from that. And the genetics and the behavior are coming from that. So then all of a sudden it comes down to, we keep trying to say if something's broken, that the cells are stupid and we're going to fix down the line. And I go, you don't understand, most people don't understand. When something's broken, that symptom is not generally where the problem started. That's the consequence of the consciousness behind it. And that by changing consciousness, you change the symptomology or can heal things. Uh, in cancer, it's called spontaneous remission. Right. Uh, uh, who has a spontaneous remission? Someone whose belief system is totally fractured, and they go, man, I, I, have, a, I have to have a new belief system. And as soon as they put a new one in, a new biology manifests. Right, absolutely. Well, thank you very, very much for this synopsis. I mean, I'm sort of enthralled with it myself, just rethinking some of these ideas and the way you put it. So this is really a wonderful overview. And again, it's about feeling safe, optimizing your body's chemistry, taking control of your own healing is a big deal. And I'm excited to uh, you know keep working with you on these concepts. It's fantastic. So thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it because you're out there. I mean, I'm talking out here in the air and you're actually dealing with real people and, uh, and real issues at that level. Uh, and so as we started, and I'll conclude with that, I, I have the deepest appreciation for uh, donating your life <laughs> uh, to, to supporting the world. Well, and vice versa. I mean, you're, you've been a huge inspiration for me also. So, well, good. Well, we'll talk in a second. I'd like to thank our guest, Bruce Lipton, for being on the show today and for taking us on a fascinating exploration of how consciousness impacts our health. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to join us next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.